All right, so this week we jump into part two of what we started last week, which is Christ is King and his humiliation and exaltation. So again, we've been working through a book, Prophet, Priest, and King, The Roles of Christ in the Bible and Our, and Our Roles Today by Richard Belcher, Jr. It's been really helpful. We've sort of adapted it for the Sunday school class. So um, it's just a really, really good book. If you get a chance to pick it up, um, and you read it, you're going to hear a lot of what we're sharing and talking through in this class. But it's a really, really helpful book. So I want to continue. I, I'm going to sort of backstep a little bit and look again at Christ as suffering, the suffering king. Um, where do we see that um, in Scripture? Is this a New Testament idea? Do we see it in the Old Testament? Draw that out a little more and then we'll jump into Jesus as king. Uh, and ruling at the right hand of the Father. So we'll do a somewhat of review, backstep, and then, and then move forward. Now, I mentioned this last week that from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, um, we, it's clearly seen and given there that uh, human beings had an authority. They were given a, a dominion. They were supposed to exercise a rule and dominion as God put them in place to do that, to rule over creation. So again, let's, let's read Genesis 1, 26 to 28 again, and then work from there. Who wants to read that for us? Nice and loud. Genesis 1, Corey, go for it. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay. So there's, a, um, there's an authority, a dominion given here. And I mentioned this last week. We, we can get an idea of what is going to happen at the end by looking at what was supposed to happen at the beginning. Right? So the whole cosmos has been set up to display the glory of the triune God and the son of man's dominion, authority, rule, and shepherding of his people. Right? So they were given dominion. They were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to subdue, to have dominion over. And it says every living thing that moves on the earth. There's a, the, the, the language here um, has in it the, the, the tone, the idea of absolute dominion, absolute authority. Right. So that's a commission given to Adam and Eve that's carried into uh, the people of Israel, when God establishes them as a nation, right? he gives them prophet, he gives them priest, and he gives them a king. But Israel's kings constantly fail to lead the nation to fulfill the mission of being the light to the nations around them, which caused them to continue uh, to long for and anticipate this king. Right? There was a searching for, there was this idea, sort of a, a glimpse of the hope of this king that was to come. And Israel's kings consistently failed, which left this longing for a greater and better king. 
Jews of Jesus' day were looking for a conquering king like David to conquer the Roman government. Uh, turn to Acts 1-6. And someone can read that. If you can read that for us nice and loud. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of, to Israel? All right, so this, this question gives us a peek into, at least, uh, their idea about what Jesus' mission was. Are you going to restore the kingdom? Uh, there's, again, this anticipation. Well, we know that there is supposed to be this kingdom restored. There is this anticipation. Something's supposed to happen. Is it you um, or is it someone else? Right? So they're, they're, they're waiting for this restoration and this conquering king. But in their mind, because of their context, because they're of the, the Roman ruling government that was uh, oppressing the Israelites, they anticipated one to free them like David from this type of oppression. But Jesus actually spoke of submission to authorities. And he not only did he do that, but he would often rebuke the leaders of Israel. Uh, it wasn't he wasn't going after the Roman government and saying, OK, let's get a let's get a band together and go in and and take the city. He was actually rebuking um, Israel's leaders and saying you were given to lead the people, but you are ignorant. You are acting like the idols, dumb, deaf, mute and blind. And so even that was a shock to his his disciples and those who heard him. The scribes and the Pharisees were often being called out by, by Jesus for their lack of leading the people. Now, the disciples, we can say they were correct in assuming that Jesus would rebuild the temple, but their timing was off and their definition of the kingdom was different. Jesus needed to help them to understand that he wasn't coming to rebuild a temple in the first century, but it was a spiritual kingdom that began during Christ's first coming that will be brought to completion in the consummation, right? So yes, there would be a kingdom. Yes, there will be an authority displayed, a rule and a reign, uh, but their timing and their idea of it was off. And Jesus' earthly ministry showed this. It, it, it exposed how they were thinking, how their thinking was off, and it was pointing them to the, the right idea um, and expectation of Christ's rule and reign. Now, Christ's suffering as a king. Now, when we think about a king, um, we usually associate with a king, a kingdom, but also um, a rule, a, a, a dominating, a conquering uh, of that, that king over his uh, adversaries. But when we think about Jesus, who is a king, and we think about his earthly life and ministry, I think like his, his disciples, we could look at him and say, well, he doesn't seem to be a king. He doesn't seem to be ruling and reigning. He doesn't seem to have all authority and to be uh, dominating. And there was a Jesus came as a, yes, uh, a humble um, lamb, but he was he was a king. And I think we see the attributes of a king, even in Jesus humiliation. Right, so <clears throat> if the kingdom that Jesus came to establish did not match the people's expectations, 
It's no surprise that the kingship of Jesus, or the one that he came to fulfill, didn't match their expectations either. Jesus began by telling his disciples what it meant for a king to be um, ruling. But he began by showing this through uh, the fact that he would suffer, be killed, and rise again. So when go to Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. When you get there, just read it nice and loud for us. Who wants to read that for us? What's that? Uh, 21 to 23. Okay. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed Hmm. That's a just fascinating and scary passage <laughs> that Jesus turns to you and says, get behind me, Satan. Um, and what's interesting is that he says, get behind me, Satan, in relation to you're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. Far be it from us to let that happen. And he associates his thinking, his words with Satan. That's just really, really interesting. But again, it shows that Jesus' mission given from the Father was to come, live a perfect life, suffer and die and be resurrected. And it's, this, it's through this that he would accomplish salvation, which we'll look at a little later. But Jesus did. He, when he rebuked uh, Peter, it was because his understanding of his ministry was, was off. In John 10, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. Now, what are some things that a shepherd does? Anybody know about shepherding? Any uh, shepherd scholars in the room? <laughs> what, what are some things that a shepherd does? Um, like tending to his flock. Right? Okay. He tends to the flock, cares for them. Feeding them. Right? Feeding them. What's that? Feeding them. Feeding them. Defending them. Defending them. Also anoints them with oil so that the bugs don't. Yeah. Right, so nice. I didn't think about that one. <laughs> There's a book called Feeding the Shepherd. Yeah. It's the children's book. Yeah, I know. I've seen it. And you learn a lot about what yeah. a shepherd does. Yeah, good. that's good. Good. Yeah, so there's anointing with oil, right, to keep them uh, clean. Um, there's feeding them. There's protecting them, right? So all of this is encompassed in the role of a shepherd. Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, right? Shepherds protect. They risk their lives for the sheep. Um, let's turn to 1 Samuel 17. We'll take a look at a passage here. 1 Samuel 17, verse 34 to 35. Now think about this, uh, the role of a shepherd, the, the attributes of, of a shepherd. 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 35. Who wants to read that for us? And David said unto Saul, My servant kept his father's sheep, 
And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smoked him and delivered it out of his mouth. When he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and smoked him and slew him. Right. So there's this picture of this shepherd, right, who um, even when wild beasts attack his sheep, he, he protects them, yes, at the risk of his own life, right? And then if you continue reading in First Samuel, it's like, uh, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, the Lord be with you. That's just a really interesting passage. But um, again, the attributes of a shepherd, they protect, they feed, they sheep, uh, they, they, um, they, they feed, I said they, they sheep, they protect the sheep and feed the sheep. Now, think about Psalm 23. Turn to Psalm 23. You'll probably see a, a subtitle there uh, provided by the translators. The Lord is my shepherd. Right. Again, that uh, seeing in this in this psalm, the attributes of, of a shepherd. This this psalm identifies the Lord who provides everything that the sheep need. The kings of Israel were also considered shepherds who provided for the people. So this isn't, again, a new a new idea. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's a rod and there's a staff, right? There's that protecting, uh, beating off, fighting off. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, another um, interesting passage that points to, to Christ ultimately but in verse four, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then it moves into all the ways in which the shepherd provides for, protects and comforts. So this isn't um, necessarily the, uh, the green pastures um, idea of the shepherd and the sheep. It's, it's the valley of the shadow of death. He's, it's there that he's doing these things, providing, protecting, anointing. This was the same idea that the, Israel, that the people of Israel would have had about their king. The king protects the people. There are gates of the kingdom that keeps enemies out and keeps the people in to protect them. He provides for them. He considers them. He, he fights for them. He goes before them into, into battle. Now, the disciples and the people of Jesus' day may not have associated the king with suffering. And you can sort of see why. They had this idea that he conquers, he rules. Uh, but the Old Testament passages showed that suffering was an aspect of the work of the coming one. The servant of the Lord was raised up 
because Israel, as God's servant, had failed in her mission. Uh, Turn to Isaiah 42. Turn to Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Someone read Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 for us. Who wants to read that? Who's there? Sure. Go for it. It's Isaiah 42, 1 through 4? Yep. Okay. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his fall. All right. Now the servant mission, it centers on suffering on behalf of others. I'm just going to pull out a couple verses here um, from Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12. Um, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which has not been heard, they understand. So he, verse 14, uh, his appearance was marred. It's beyond recognition, beyond resemblance. Uh, so in his uh, suffering, this, this servant, in his suffering, um, you wouldn't even be able to recognize who he was. So imagine, um, you know, I get mugged and I get beat up and I come into service and I'm up here trying to teach Sunday school class. And you're looking at me and you're like, that, that doesn't even look like Desmond. Like his, his he, he, you can't recognize him, right? He's, he's marred beyond recognition. Um, 53.1, who has believed what they heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a plant like the root of the, of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that they should look at him, no beauty that they should desire him. Um, so he didn't walk around like some, some model that everyone wanted to go after. He was just normal. Um, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And just to summarize the next few verses here, um, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, smitten by God, afflicted, he wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Uh, but the chastisement that was brought upon him brought peace to us. And with his stripes, we are healed. So listen to he, them, he, them, he, we. What's happening to him is for them. What's happening to him is for us. 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All right, so there's this aspect of this servant who's suffering, who also has the attributes of a king. But here in Isaiah, it talks about this, 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 his disfigurement, his suffering 
on behalf of, of others. And so there is a, a category that should have been there in the minds of the people as they anticipated this one to come, that there would be a suffering here. It's, it's prophesied, it's foretold, right? But it still was something that they didn't seem to be ready for. Some of David's metaphorical descriptions of his suffering are fulfilled literally in Christ. He was hounded by his enemies and surrounded by those who would do him harm. Uh, we see that in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, and that sort of parallel passage in Matthew 27. Just like David, the king suffered in Psalm 22, Christ is mocked by the Roman soldiers with the words, Hail, King of the Jews. And he's crucified with the charge written above the cross. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. All right, so Jesus' earthly ministry, even and his humiliation as king is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy even. So not just one who would provide for, feed, protect, anoint, but one who would suffer on the behalf of, of others, which is a category in his kingship, right? In this, in this way, he was to suffer and die because part of the king's role is what? To protect the people. And Jesus' earthly ministry, what he accomplishes for us, protects us from sin, death, Satan. But he does it through his suffering self. Now, let's consider Jesus as king and ruling at the right hand of the Father. Any thoughts on that before I jump to the next section here? Yeah. And he would serve as a door from wild animals right. and stuff like that. So, right. Um, and how That's good. Yeah. yeah. So that's yep. parallel. Yep. He's protecting. He's, yeah. he's, he's the first one to meet the intruder, right? The door. Yeah. The door. Yep. What else? Anything else? All right. Well, let's look at Jesus as king and ruling at the right hand of the Father. Now, the Old Testament is clear that God is king of Israel and of the whole world. Now, if God is king of the whole world, why is it even necessary to establish God's reign um, in Christ in his earthly ministry? The Bible says that God rules and reigns. Why is establishing Christ in his earthly ministry as one who rules and reigns as king? Why is that necessary? Right. What comes to mind for you? Have, have you considered that? <clears throat> I'll tell you. <laughs> One answer is that the reign of God has now come into the lives of people who submit their lives to Jesus. Right? So this is a, there's a reversal again of the fall. Remember I said looking at the end and what happens at the end tells us what should have happened at the beginning, right? People submit their lives willingly, uh, joyfully to the rule of the king. They bend the knee. Um, another answer is that in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he received the kingdom as a human being. Now, in Jesus' exaltation, there is this um, reinstatement of the original intended divine order for the earth, 
with a human being properly situated as God's vice regent or someone appointed to act for another. Adam, Eve, points at the beginning, dominion, authority over all creation. They fail. Sin, death enters the world through, through sin. The second Adam, or the last Adam, Romans, Paul, Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam in Romans 5. He does what the first Adam failed to do. Jesus' resurrection and exaltation achieves victory again over sin, the power of Satan, and death. So the resurrection is actually crucial to the gospel um, and accomplishing what Adam failed to do because since Adam failed, sin and death enter. So now sin and death have to be dealt with. They can't just be left, right? How does God deal with sin and death? Romans 4.25. Someone turn there for us. Romans 4.25. And whoever gets there, just read it nice and loud. Trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay. Jesus delivered up. Trespasses raised for our justification. Now, when you think about justification, right? Maybe we're a reformed church. You think about Luther with um, the hammer, which wasn't probably just a little, (laughs) you know. We think about that, right? We think about the German Reformation. We think about Luther. But here, Romans 4.25, Jesus was raised for our justification. Do you think about the resurrection when you think about justification? When you talk about justification in the gospel, is the resurrection a category in your mind? Is it small? Is it big? Romans 4.12 says he was raised for our justification. And then 1 Corinthians 15.17, Paul goes so far as to say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. So there's no, there's no hope. There's no, there's no faith. There's no freedom from sin if Jesus hasn't been raised. In Romans 1.12, Jesus is declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So this, this declaration doesn't focus on his eternal status as son. Right? We know he's the eternally begotten son of the father. But it refers to the new phase of his messianic lordship, his exaltation as a human being to the position of ruler over his people, the nation, in all things, which we see in Genesis 1. Every living thing you have dominion over. Jesus is given dominion over all things. <clears throat> so humiliation leads to exaltation. And the son received the name that is above every name. He is the invisible image of God who shows us what God is like. And he has come to restore the divine image of human beings through his incarnation. Um, I heard, um, or maybe I was reading something, one of the patristic fathers. He said, um, every, something like this, every um, uh, feature or aspect of human nature, of man's nature, that Christ took on and his humiliation, he will redeem, right? So our wills, our intellect, our affections, hearts, souls, everything Christ takes on in his humiliation. When when Christ, when, when Philippians talks about Christ's humiliation, it's not that he's 
putting, um, he's putting off something, he's putting aside something that he had before. No, his humiliation is him putting on human, humanity, essentially, right? So when we think about humiliation, it's not him losing something he had, but it's him putting on something he did not have, uh, human, human flesh, right? But every aspect that he takes on, he will redeem. Now, that's encouraging for me. My will will be redeemed. <laughs> my mind, my, my, my intellect. When we think about um, the people we prayed for earlier, um, those who have been um, crushed by sickness or crushed by physical ailments, um, our ability to reason and to think and to feel rightly, appropriately about God. When you're reading your Bible and it becomes boring to you, it becomes boring to me as I'm reading, these are the results of, of not having a redeemed humanity. Um, God is never boring. His word is never boring. But we, we, we live in human flesh and we get distracted and we just, I'm not getting out of it what I know is here. And we turn it over and we, we go to something else. Like these are, the, these are the, the noetic effects of the fall. This is our ability to reason, to feel rightly, to think rightly about God. It'll be redeemed. <laughs> so there won't be any um, hesitation or fight to read the word or to get into communion with God in prayer. All of these things will be brought to perfection in the age to come. All right, so... Christ will have, there will be a complete redemption of every aspect of us in, in Christ, which happens through his humiliation and exaltation as a man, right? Now, I say this, but we have to maintain the hypostatic union, right? Which is what? Jesus as God and man, God and man right? Truly God, truly man, right? We're talking about his human nature here. Um, all right, where am I? So the exalted status of Jesus is shown in the description of him as the firstborn of all creation. Uh, that phrase really reflects Psalm 89, 27, where David is called the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Right, so far from how um, other false teachings might interpret that, it's referring to his kingship. Through the church and the conquering power of the gospel, Christ continues to reconcile all things to himself. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 8 is a sort of parallel passage of Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Someone, uh, well, put, put your finger at Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Um, no, actually, put your finger at Psalm 8 and then put another finger at Hebrews 2. I want to look at these two, um, what can be seen as parallel passages. Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2. I was going to put this up on the screen, but I don't think that works right now. <laughs> it did? You, um, Bluetooth? Oh, yeah? All right. Like the screen share? Is that what she did? Oh, yeah? Okay. She might have Oh, that's what it was, yeah. Okay. Android wins again. Okay, Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2. Y'all there? Okay. Psalm 8, verse 5. I'm just going to call on you. Josh, you, you, you mind reading verse 5? 
Okay. Who is Psalm 8-5 talking about? Well, it's sort of a trick question, but <laughs> who's it talking about? Psalm 8-5. Yeah. Mankind, right? Human beings. I guess that wasn't a trick question for you. Um, human beings. Look at Hebrews 2. Read verse 9. Uh, Barani. But we Okay, so same language there, intentionally, right? It's supposed to draw us back to Adam and Eve as the crown of creation, mankind, and tie a thread to Jesus, who again, the second Adam does what Adam and Eve failed to do, made him a little lower than angels. This, this language isn't to say that Jesus, uh, that the eternally begotten son of God is a created being like everything else in creation anything not God is a creation uh, this, this isn't drawing that out it's, it's, it's supposed to take our minds to dominion authority given to man Adam and Eve and how Christ fulfills what they failed to do right? there's, there's a redemptive historical thing happening here um, Psalm 8 uh, verse uh, 6 read that for us uh, Will you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Okay, and then, Cor, you want to read Hebrews 2.8? Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, we left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now these, again, the, the, the parallels between these two passages is really amazing. Because it's building um, into our minds a category of a redeemed humanity through Christ who suffers and is exalted. And in him, the redeemed will be exalted. Right? Adam represents all humanity in him. Um, Romans 5 again. Uh, in, in him... Uh, death, uh, sin, death, um, just as the first Adam fell, all who are in him fallen. Second Adam, Jesus, all who are in him are redeemed. It's a paraphrase, but read it later. It's, uh, it, it gives um, context, and really Paul does this sort of exposition of this idea. First Adam, last Adam. First Adam, last Adam. Jesus rules the universe at the right hand of the throne of God, but not everything in creation do we see currently subject to him but a day is coming when everything will be subject to him someone go to philippians 2 9 to 11 and then someone else go to colossians 1 15 to 20 who wants philippians 2 barani and then colossians 1 15 to 20 got colossians okay oh, barani and kim so that's all right. <laughs> you mean you don't have the Bible, the New Testament memorized? <laughs> what kind of church is this? Philippians <laughs> 2, uh, sorry. 9 to 11. Okay. Um, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him 
the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All right. Yep, in Colossians 1. interesting how that ends that at least those verses making peace by the blood of the cross intrinsic crucial to our redemption is a suffering servant a king who dies for the people bloodshed right this carries the old testament um uh, institution that god put into place uh, an animal being sacrificed for the sins of the people so that i could hold god can dwell with sinful people it's, it finds its end in christ now, Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 find fulfillment in Jesus, who restores our proper place of dominion in creation, right? Mankind, humanity. The reestablishment of God's reign in Christ also brings the restoration of the whole creation, right? Again, Genesis 1, 26 to, 26, 26 to 28, the whole creation they were given dominion over. It's interesting when God curses them, uh, the man, the woman, the serpent, the ground gets cursed too. The ground gets cursed, he said, curses the ground because of, essentially, you, man, you, Adam. And so, Christ reversing the effects of the fall, this must include man, woman, and creation, right? He's, he's undoing what uh, happened because of Adam's sin. All right, so there will be an establishing, a ruling, a reigning, a restoration of all things. And one day everything will be subject to Jesus means that one day everything will be subject to us. I know that's a... We, we're, we're in there somewhere? Yes, we are. We see this in First Peter, Second Peter. Um, there is a restoration of all things. If we are in union with Christ, we don't become gods. We know this. Right? I'm talking to... My church, I know y'all know this, but there is in the exaltation of all these things, those who are redeemed. Ephesians 1 says we're seated with him in heavenly places, right? Not on the throne, but in him, union with Christ. There is an exaltation that we get that, that's restored to mankind, which was given to Adam, right? We get that back through Christ who redeems all things. Right? He will destroy sin, death, Satan, and we will um, reign with our Lord again in the new heavens and new earth. Right? So it's just I'm scratching the surface here, but it is a glorious thought to know that we will be brought and those who are in union with Christ will be brought to that glorious end where all things will be will be subject. Um, I think about my own heart. I think about my mind, the, the hardest things to get a grip on. It's my heart, my wayward thoughts and my mind. 
one day they will be fully redeemed and there won't be this struggle with sin and we won't have to be praying for people who are sick or uh, depressed or crushed under the weight of you know whatever afflictions there will be no persecuted church in the in the age to come all things every aspect of humanity every aspect of the cosmos will be redeemed in the person of jesus christ <laughs>